Hey, good morning, everybody. I am pumped uh, to answer some of your questions today, uh, this morning. And so here's the deal. If you don't like this, it's on you because these are your questions. All right. I accept no responsibility for this. No. Hey, this is the beginning of our series. You asked for it. Uh, and throughout the series, you're just going to be answering questions that you guys have. And so before we dive into this, um, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to hop right into some questions that you guys had. We're just going to get about eight of them off today. Okay. Uh, and so here's the deal. Before, before I dive in, if you have a question, like a follow-up question, or you thought of a question, today is the last day to submit those and get them in so that we can make sure we have time uh, to squeeze them into this series. So if you have a question, uh, the link is in the Bible app. Uh, if you have a follow-up question to a question we have, you can submit it there. But before we go any further, uh, let's just pray. God, I thank you uh, for what you've already done for the amazing worship. I pray that your spirit would move, God, that it would come rest on us. Uh, God, you'd help us have tender hearts, not to, not to me or anybody on stage with a microphone, but God, we would be tender to your word, uh, that you would move in this room today and you would do great things. God, that you would answer people's questions through your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, a few ground rules that I want to get to before we hop into these questions and get after them. Um, the authority is not me. Uh, the authority is not anybody with a stage and a platform or a microphone. Uh, the authority is God's word. And so what I want to do is point back to God's word and see how God's word answers the questions that we have here. Now, here's the deal. There are some questions that might have a pretty black and white answer. And there are other questions where it might not necessarily be a black or white answer. Uh, maybe there's some principles in the Bible that point to it, but we don't see a specific ex explicit you need to do this or do not do this. And so for that reason, these cards that I have, uh, some of them are white, some of them are gray, some of them are tan, because I just want us to keep in mind, there are things that you can look at and say, with scripture, I land on this side of this. And other people could say, I look at scripture and I land on this side of this. And so uh, we want to make sure that however we reach our conclusions, that we get there through God's word and not through what we think it should be or what we want it to be. God's word is the final authority. And so uh, here's the deal. There might be some things throughout this series where you land on one side and somebody else lands on the other. We just want to make sure that you got to that decision by God's word. And so there's this old quote that a lot of people use. It's really famous by uh, Augustine. It says this, in the essentials, unity. Uh, in the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. All right, so there's some stuff that God's word says that we need to be unified on. Where there could be no disagreement. There's other stuff, some of that gray, tan, off-white stuff, where you know what? Maybe it's not an essential thing, but we can have some liberty uh, in our fellowship to disagree on that. But in all things, charity. So even when we disagree with someone, uh, can, I, can I just say that? I think that's what our world needs. That's what our country needs. Even when we disagree with someone, we need to do it in a loving way. I think if our country did that, we'd be in a lot better spot, okay? But in all things, charity. We want to have love for one another. So having said that, let's go. Question number one right here. What books of the Bible would you recommend for a new believer to start with? What book of the Bible or books of the Bible would you recommend for a new believer to start with? <clears throat> uh, there, uh, this one is definitely something that you don't necessarily uh, have to have chapter and verse for. It's asking a practical question. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do 
what is right. And that first part, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful. So when it comes to getting into God's Word, when it comes into uh, what book of the Bible would you recommend for a new believer, I just want to say the first thing is this. Get into the Word. Okay? That is the best thing you can do uh, to create a spiritual habit of getting into God's Word and diving in and taking it in for yourself. I'm not listening to somebody on a message and, and eating already chewed up food, but to get into the Word and to eat it for yourself. That's the best thing you could do. Uh, the second thing that I would just say is start with something that relates to you. Uh, everybody's kind of wired a little differently. For me, I really like the, uh, like the wisdom literature because it's kind of poetic and it just gives like illustrations and it, it kind of speaks figuratively. And those things really resonate with me. So I really like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Like those things really resonate with me because I'm kind of wired that way. Other people, uh, you, I, give it to me straight. I don't need no picture. Just tell it to me straight. We're wired a little bit differently. So I would just say, jump into a book based on kind of how you are wired. All right, if you kind of X is a nose person, all right, maybe start in Romans. If you, uh, maybe you like the figurative, the, the poetic stuff, and hop into some of those poetic books, okay? Uh, but what we want to do is to find things that are going to make you create that spiritual habit, that spiritual rhythm of getting into God's Word. Uh, so a few practical things uh, to kind of answer this question. Uh, I want to lay the groundwork there. All right, if you uh, know there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, there's... 31 days in some months. So a good way to create that rhythm, to create that habit, they say a proverb a day. If it's, today's the 24th, so you'd read the 24th Proverbs. Tomorrow's the 25th, you'd read the 24th chapter of Proverbs. Uh, that might be a good way to do it. Other people say this, you need to start reading the New Testament. So you start with the Gospel of John. Uh, if you don't know, the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are four guys who give their individual accounts of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So a lot of people say you start at John. You know why? Because if you start at Matthew, you're going to read the same stories four times in a row. Okay? Different perspectives. There's different stuff there. But sometimes that can feel like, I'm, I already read this. What's going on? So starting in John, I'm going to give you John. Uh, you're going to go through the rest of the New Testament, not reading that the same thing over and over again uh, right out the gate. Uh, some people say, I'm going to start in Genesis. And they usually get through Genesis, Exodus, and they get to Leviticus, and it's like, this is Old Testament law, all right? Don't boil a, a baby lamb in its mother's milk. What are we talking about here, okay? It, you, get, you get a little scared, like, what, what am I reading, okay? Find something that relates to you and, and hop into it. I would recommend starting with the gospel. The first time, maybe the gospel of John, read through the rest of the New Testament, and then maybe start again uh, with Luke or Matthew or Mark, and then skip that and go right after the gospels and keep going through the New Testament. All right, the main thing that I want to hit here the best thing that you can read as a new believer, as an established believer, is to create that rhythm, to create that habit of getting into God's Word. You need to be taking it in for yourself, not taking already chewed up food. Can I get an amen? That wasn't, there wasn't a lot of conviction there, right? You guys might want to step it up, okay? All right, next question. All right, why does the worship music resonate in your head throughout the week? All right, so I've got to get really psychological on this answer, okay? I'm going to go deep because our team's awesome. Okay. <laughs> Give it up for our team. Hey, uh, honestly, we have an amazing team. They do a great job. Uh, but I think that is a component of it. They do great. The other part is this. We're not singing praises to ourselves. We're not singing praises to the team up here. Like, we're not singing this back to them. We're singing praises to God. All right? And he sits on the throne. And so that's why those get stuck in your head because it's bigger than you. And that's how it should 
be, okay? So that's, uh, I think, a couple reasons why it gets stuck in our head throughout the week. All right, when you are born, next question, is there a set day when you die? When you're born, is there a set day when you die? So I'm going to hop into the passage here in just a second, uh, but I think this question is kind of, uh, I think sometimes movies shape us sometimes. Uh, has anybody ever seen the movie Final Destination? Anybody? I see, I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand. All right, I'll pray for you. No, hey, uh, but I think, I think uh, I've seen it, all right? And it kind of portrays death, like if you escape death, death is coming for you. Like you missed your appointed time. And I don't think uh, that that's really what scripture, or the verse we're about to read is getting at. But I do think that it says this, um, in Hebrews 9, 27, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. Okay? It says, each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's, you could see, read that and say, is there an appointed time when you die? And I think the biblical answer is yes, th- that there is. But it's not final destination, all right? I think that's where this question is kind of rooted. It's not like, okay, it's coming for me. I think it's God is all-knowing. He knows everything. So he knows when you're going to breathe your last breath on this earth. I think that's what it's getting at here. Not that he's coming for you, that he's like, I'm going to take him right here. Uh, But I think he knows you so well. He knows this world so well that he knows when that is going to happen. So Hebrews 9, 27, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, verse 28, so also Christ was offered once for all as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. I like how it gives us that right after that in that verse. Yes, there is a time that we're all going to die, but what does it say right there? Those who are eagerly waiting for Christ to bring us salvation. He's going to come back again. Uh, We don't need to worry. We don't need to fear that death because Christ is going to come. We're going to be with him in heaven. He's going to come and he's going to get us. Next question. All right. What does it mean to be buried with Christ in baptism? What does it mean to be buried with Christ in baptism? All right, that's actually a, a, a pull from Scripture, the person who submitted this. So in Romans 6, 4, it says this, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. I've got a question for you. Uh, got the next slide there. Is this my family? Okay, uh, hands raised, Yes. Hands raised for no. Okay, uh, nobody got it right. This is not my family. This is a picture of my family. My family are in those classrooms over there. This is just a picture of it. Now, this, this is a picture of my family. That's what my family looks like, um, except it looks a little pixelated on the LED while we look a little weird, okay? Just seeing this now, all right? But hey, uh, that's a picture of my family. My family is actually in the kids' classroom over there having a great time. So what does it mean to be buried with Christ in baptism? All right, why do people get baptized? Because you've decided to follow Jesus. And Jesus came to the earth, he died on the cross, and then he rose again. Right? So to say that you are buried with Christ in baptism, because that baptism... You're not literally dying and literally being raised from the dead. Jesus did that. But it's a picture of what he has done for us. That's why we do it. 
to tell other people that I'm following Jesus now. It's a picture of it. So uh, we don't literally die, all right? Maybe spiritually we were dead and then we're raised to life. Uh, but baptism is a picture of what Christ has done for us. So that's why uh, we say buried with Christ in baptism. That's why people say that sometimes, okay? Does that make sense? Give me a thumbs up. All right. All right. Everybody say good morning. All right. All right. Let's go. Let's turn it up. Come on. You can do it. You can do it. All right. We're going to keep moving on. How does God view sin? This is going to be a really good one. How does God view sin? Is stealing bubble gum viewed and forgiven the same as murder? How does God view sin? Is stealing bubble gum viewed and forgiven the same as murder? I think this question um, is kind of one of those like rhetorical questions where you get like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Like you kind of want to see what somebody says there. You want to see what they're thinking, what they're, what they're going through. Um, so how does God view sin? Uh, I think the Bible is pretty clear that sin is sin. Uh, in James 2, verse 10, it says this, For the person who keeps all of the law except for one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. It continues on in verse 11. It says, For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. James 2, 10 through 12. So sin is sin. If you break one part of God's law, if you break one thing, if you do one sin, it's sin. So is stealing bubblegum a sin? Yeah, it is. Uh, is murdering someone a sin? I would like a, a little bit of an a, a emphatic yes on that one. Okay, you guys are scaring me. All right. Uh, so, hey, here's the deal. They are both sin. Stealing bubblegum is sin. Murdering someone, definitely sin. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, and here's the, the crazy thing, is that both of those would make us guilty. All right? They would make us imperfect. We couldn't get to heaven without Jesus because it's sin. And the Bible clearly says if you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of it all. Like, that's just how it works. It's a pass-fail class. And we're all going to fail without Jesus. We, we need him. That's why he died on the cross for us. And so you, you can't out the grace of God. You can't out the grace of God. So uh, here's what's kind of cool is uh, God's grace will forgive you of stealing that bubble gum, the hypothetical bubble gum that you stole, all right? And, and God's grace will forgive you for murder. You can't out the grace of God. Uh, uh, there is a, a, a famous serial killer, Ted Bundy. Anybody ever heard of Ted Bundy? He's kind of, kind of wild. All right? They got some documentaries. It's, it's crazy. Um, when De Ted Bundy was on death row, there was a famous pastor who came, uh, and he actually shared the gospel with him. And so uh, Ted Bundy, by his own admission, all right, we're going to take him at his word. We're not going to get into the he was about to die. Maybe he was looking for a way out. All right, we're just going to take him at his own word. Ted Bundy said that he became a believer all right, when this pastor uh, shared the gospel with him. That means... If he, if he believed, we're going to take him at his word. If he became a believer, he accepted what Christ had did for him on the cross. He is forgiven. He is made right with God because our standing is not based off of our good works. Our standing with God is based off of what he has done for us. 
Ted Bundy, we're going to take him at his word, if he accepted Jesus, he is in heaven. So is stealing gum and murder viewed the same and forgiven the same by God? Yes. All right. They are forgiven the same by God. Because it's not by our works so that none of us should boast. It's by Jesus and what he's done for us. Now, I want, some of you guys are like, I don't feel right with me. Uh, forgiveness from your sin does not mean freedom from your consequences. Okay, so I want, I want you to hear that part too. Forgiveness of your sin does not mean that you have freedom from your consequences. All right, go back to Ted Bundy, use him as an illustration. He was still executed, right? There was still a consequence for the evil things that he did. So freedom from our, I'm sorry, forgiveness of our sin does not equate freedom from our consequences. So they are the same, but at the same time, the consequences for those things are completely different. You steal bubble gum, all right? Your mom's going to find out and make you go tell the guy, and you're going to feel really bad, and you're going to pay him back. If you murder someone, um, yeah, you're going to jail, right? Uh, you might be put to death. You're probably going to have life in jail, right? The consequences for those things are different, but they are forgiven by God the same way because it's not based on what we've done. It's not based on our good works. It's all by faith. It's all by grace. And sometimes that doesn't sit well with us because we want to feel like we're better than other people. But that's not what it's about. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. Next one. What is the best way to witness to people who say they do not believe in God? What's the best way to witness to people who say they do not believe in God? Now, I got a couple things uh, that I think would just be some good practices, best practices for you, because um, there's no one-size-fits-all answer because the relationships that you have are different. The first thing you should do, and this is going to be groundbreaking, you should love them. Just love them. The best way to, to witness to people is to love them. They don't believe in God? Who cares? Love them anyways. People don't care what you know till they know that you care. I'm sure you guys have probably heard that before. The, the first thing you need to do is love them. Uh, and, and then you cannot share what you don't practice. What I mean by that is uh, you cannot give what you do not possess. The best way to share your faith is to have a strong faith, a faith worth sharing. It's going to be natural if that's what you do. Uh, I got a trainer, all right? I'm going to say the trainer so he keeps anonymity. He's in this room. Uh, but guess what? He works out. He looks like an ox, all right? He's huge. And when we're working out, he just does things to keep going naturally to him because why? That's what he does. That's who he is. He lifts weights. He's a big dude. He's going to give us training and help me to do other stuff because that's what he does. That's a part of who he is. He didn't have to think about that. What's the best way to do this? It's what he does. I think in the same way, if our faith is an integral part of our lives, we're going to share it in ways. We're going to share what God is doing in us uh, with those around us because that's, we share everything else. If your faith is a big part of your life, you need to share it too. So. We need to love them. Uh, you can't share what you don't practice. Uh, and the last thing I would say is just ask them questions. Ask them questions. Get to know them. Ask them questions about their life, about uh, their, their childhood. Ask them questions about their family. Just, just get to know them. Um, and I would think this is the question. If you have somebody who's saying, I don't believe in God, 
this is actually from a, a pastor in New York City. He's, his name's Tim Keller. He's a super smart guy. Uh, he just says this, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Maybe I don't believe in that God either. I think there's some huge wisdom in that. Usually when people say they don't believe in God, they've been picked up something because they're hurt. Uh, it, it very well could be intellectually. That's where they're at. But I'm telling you, I honestly think we go through life and people who take shots at us and we feel it and we carry it. And there's people who say they don't believe in God because they've gone through some trauma, because they've gone through some hurt, and they've picked up some pain in this life. Tell me about the God you don't believe. Maybe I don't believe in that God either. You need to ask them questions. You need to see what they're thinking. And if you don't engage in those spiritual conversations, you're never going to be able to have that, that conversation. You're never going to be able to have that real conversation with them. And the last thing I'll say is this. They're people. No one has ever lost an argument to, like, no people, two people haven't debated about God and somebody be like, oh, you're right, I lost the argument. Nobody ever lost an argument and was like, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's, that's not how it goes, all right? Uh, but people are won over through relationships and love. And so I would just say, don't think of this as a person you need to flip to the gospel. Think of this as a person that you need to love and to be for and to minister to. And let the Holy Spirit do its work. And you just keep injecting truth and love and care and kindness into that conversation. That's the best way to share your faith, all right? To have a real authentic faith that's overflowing out of you that you can share with others. Next one. This one's going to be fun. Is it our jobs as Christians to point out other people's sin? Is it our job as Christians to point out other people's sin? Yes. Next question. No. Okay. No. You should not employ yourself to point out other people's sins. That is awful. Matthew, 1, Matthew 7 verse 1 says this. Do not judge others. And you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard, for, the standard you use in judging others is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you have a log in your own eye? Hypocrite, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So is it our job as Christians to point out other people's sin? No. It is not. It is not our job to look at somebody else's life and to say, that's wrong. And I, I'll just say this. We're going to pivot here a little bit. It should definitely not be your job to point out the sin in people who don't follow Jesus. You know what you should do to people who don't follow Jesus? You should love them. You should be kind to them. You should minister to them. You should be there for them when they're hurting, not say you shouldn't do that. But I think where sometimes there, there's different passages in the Bible, and so I want to be clear, that's where the authority comes from. Uh, some people will get this idea that they need to point out the sin in others from this, this passage right here. This is one of them. 1 Corinthians 5 uh, says this, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but just as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Is it our job as Christians to point out other people's sin? I think uh, 
No, it's not our job. We should not employ ourselves to do that. We definitely shouldn't do that to those outside of the church. But what we should do, if you have a brother or a sister, you have somebody in the faith who's doing something that's going to harm them, you should lovingly speak the truth into that situation. The truth isn't my opinion. The truth isn't our world's opinion. The truth isn't their opinion. The truth is God's word. So Ephesians 4.15 says this, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Speak the truth in love. What, what a lot of us like to do, uh, especially, I think, just keyboard warriors, they like to speak the truth, but no love. I'm on Twitter. I follow a bunch of pastors and stuff on Twitter uh, and people that are in seminary and all that stuff. And they're kind of some of the worst people because somebody will take a quote from a sermon they'll put it out there, and they'll be like, that was the incorrect, uh, that was eisegesis, that wasn't exegesis. You did not properly translate that text. That is wrong, right? And they just go back at each other, and they just hate on each other for having different, different views. And remember what we talked about at the very beginning, but in all things, charity. Here's the deal. You can't love someone without knowing them. You can't love someone unless you know them. And so if you want to point out the sin in a, in a brother or sister's life, somebody who is following Jesus, I think you can lovingly do that, but here's the deal. You need to speak the truth in love, and if you don't know them, you can't love them. But what a lot of us like to do, what happens in a lot of, a lot of Christianity is they see somebody over there who's doing something that, that very well could be against Scripture. And what they do is they throw arrows at them instead of going and talking to them. They condemn them instead of caring for them. Because they've been led astray. And so what we think we need to do is to cut them out and just to get them out of our tribe. And what I think Scripture would want us to do is to go lovingly to them, to have a relationship, to talk to them, to share how God's word speaks to whatever's going on. You can't speak the truth in love without knowing them. And that's what God calls to do. So is it our job to point out others' sin? No, it's not. Should you sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron? Should the church do that for each other? Yes, absolutely we should. Absolutely we should. Next question. Is there evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead? Is there evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead? Uh, I would say absolutely yes. There is historical evidence to prove that. Uh, you could look at the number of manuscripts of the Bible that would give it a very you could verify the Bible that would say these are truth. Like there is so much of this that we can say uh, this is a verifiable historical text that we can trust. They do that with other texts. You could do that with the Bible. It hits a lot of those standards. Uh, but I think this question is not a, uh, it's not an intellectual question. It's not do I know this? How can I know that Jesus was there? How can I know that? Uh, because just like I said, you don't win people to Christ by winning an argument, by making them lose. It's a heart decision. So is there evidence that Jesus rode from, rose from the dead? I think yes. I think the strongest evidence is this. The 12 disciples, people who followed Jesus incredibly close. All right, Judas, he got nixed. All right, he's out of there. He gets replaced by the Apostle Paul. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. Um, of the 12 disciples, it's commonly accepted historically. This is not like in the Bible. Uh, some of them are mentioned in the Bible. Some of them aren't. It's historically accepted right, by the world that the 12 disciples were all martyred except for one, John. 11 out of 12 martyred. That means they were died because of their faith. 
because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think it's say, yeah, that, that makes sense. They followed Jesus. They left everything, and they were fishermen and all this stuff. Like, they just were like, we're going to follow Jesus now. Um, and, and I'll just tell you, sometimes we give ourselves the benefit of looking back, but we don't give them the benefit of that. So it says this in John 20, 25. This is Peter. This is one of the 12 uh, disciples. This is one who uh, was martyred. And he says this when Jesus has died. They tell him that Jesus has rose from the grave. And he says, they say, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers in them, and place my hand into the side, into the wound in his side. Did you, did you catch that? Like, like he's saying, I will not believe this unless I can touch it with my hands, unless I can see it with my own two eyes that Jesus is back. Because I saw him die. Also a historical fact, Jesus died. He was crucified. And I'm not going to believe it unless I can, I can see it right in front of me. And I can use my five senses and just experience this. I'm not going to believe it. Is there evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay. We have an account here in the Bible that's Peter saying, I'm not buying it unless I can see it right in front of me. And if you just keep going a little bit further in that passage, Jesus shows up. He puts his hand in the holes, in the wounds. He's flipped. He's flipped so much from saying, I'm not going to believe this unless I can see it. And then he sees it, and he goes all the way to the point of death. Uh, Peter was actually crucified. Hear this. They say he was crucified upside down because he didn't want the honor of dying the same way as his Savior. You could go through the historical evidence to prove that Jesus rose. I think that might be the best case there ever was. Somebody who was close to him. And you would think he has reason to follow him, but after Jesus died, he goes, I want nothing to do with it. I'm not going to believe it unless I can see it. To go from that to saying, I can't die the same way as my Savior. Crucify me upside down. Yes, there is really evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think that right there is a great case for it. Last question. Why do people not get what they deserve? More importantly, why does God say, vengeance is mine? Isn't that contradictory to an eye for an eye? So uh, there is some passages here that are referenced in this question. Uh, and so that first one is Romans twelve nineteen. It says this, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Okay, so it definitely says, um, vengeance is mine. Like God's saying, I got this. Don't worry about it. And then it says, doesn't that contradict an eye for an eye? In Exodus 21, 24, it's actually talking about what happens if someone is injured. That's the context of this in the, in the Old Testament. It says, an eye for an eye. It goes a little further. A tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, right? You're going to give them back what they paid, whatever they took from you, they're going to pay back. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for a foot. Are those things kind of contradictory? Yeah, they are. There's a, there's a thing we got to remember here is that in the Old Testament, there was the law. I remember we just talked about that in James. That says if you are guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of it all. 
So in that Old Testament, they had this law because that's how they were made right with God, by following the law. And they couldn't follow the law, so what they had to do is make sacrifices. They had to uh, kill a lamb. They had, there was specific rules about how they had to do that. They had to come with an altar and, and sacrifice something. They had to give it to the priests. And that's how they were made right with God. Some people call that uh, the, the age of the law because they had to fulfill the law. They had to do it, and it was imperfect. That's why they had to keep giving these animals and sacrificing them and, and killing them so they could be made right with God. And in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, there's a switch. We're not in uh, the law anymore, the age of the law. We are actually, what Jesus did for us on the cross, he shifts it, all right? Uh, he did not come to destroy the law. He actually fulfilled the law. He was perfect. And because he was perfect, what happens is we get the shift from the age of law to now we are living in the age of grace. We're living in the age of grace. And if we keep back up a little bit to that first passage in Romans, it's at Romans 17 says this, never pay back evil with more evil. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. It goes on, it says, do all that you can, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Let everyone see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. That's easy just to say a verse, and that's really hard to live out because our world is broken. We have had things, you have had things happen to you that you did not deserve in our flesh. We just, we want to pay people back. We want, we want an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a foot for a foot, a hand for a hand. We want that. I feel that. But what's it going to look like if you pay back evil with more evil? It actually says in another part in the book of Romans that we need to pay back evil with good. And in doing so, you will heap burning coals onto their head. I like that. All right, to return evil with good, it confuses the person who's doing good. Because why would this happen? Why would it happen? Going back to the question here, why do people get, why do people not get what they deserve? I guess there's, there's two ways of looking at why do we, why do some people get good things even though they're necessarily bad people? And why do some people that are necessarily good people, they get bad things that happen to them? And um, again, God's word is the authority, so uh, I just want to be clear. I don't know. Like, there are things that happen in this broken world that we're not going to have a perfect answer for. But just in this question, can't you, I mean, I think those come from a place of hurt, right? Why, why do people not get what they deserve, because I've had some people wrong me in my life, and I really wish that there would be some justice uh, given to them. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Um, we're called to be Jesus followers, not Jesus understanders. Okay, uh, And what we want to do in life is we want to understand what, why. Why is this happening? And, and sometimes you might get an answer why. It's not a promise, though. We're called to be Jesus followers. So I want you to know that whatever has happened to you, whatever people have done to you, I don't know why that has happened. But I want to tell you this. Whatever it is, God can take that evil that's happened to you and turn it into something good. 
We talk about people not getting what they deserve. Jesus came to the earth and he lived a perfect life. Nothing wrong. And yet, he ended up dying on a criminal's cross when he did nothing. He did everything right. We want to talk about doing good and being paid evil. And if my God, my Savior, my Jesus can take that evil that happened to him and turn it into the good news of the gospel that we get to experience, I just want you to know to be a Jesus follower is to believe that God can take whatever evil happens to you and he can make some good come out of it. It's not that that situation, not that that thing was good. There are bad things. There are hurt. There are things that happen in our life that is not good. But God can take that and he can make good come out of it. And you might not understand where that's at. Depending on what season of life you're in right now, it might feel like all I do is I just feel the hurt. I just feel the pain. And I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. We live in a broken world. But you can take Jesus to the bank. He loves you. He can turn this evil and he can get some good out of it. You just need to follow him. Let's pray.